Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Davey O'Shea works as a sparker for Nikola Tesla, implementing his wireless electricity technology to the streets of London in 1888. He's also on the lookout as a detective for Scotland Yard during the peak of Jack the Ripper's gruesome spree. Visited by a strange man one night out on the job, Davy is presented with the legendary sword Excalibur, and upon touching it, learns he is a descendant of King Arthur himself. Now armed with the knowledge of his famed ancestor, Davy joins forces with other descendants of the Round Table to search for King Arthur's true nemesis. Always two steps behind, however, and with more of the Ripper's victims piling up, Davy must find a way to get ahead in order to stop both past and present adversaries. Lamplight is the first ever Keeper's novel created by A. David Barrett. You can find it now on Amazon, on Kindle, hardcover and paperback and also soon in audiobook format, narrated by the fantastic, if I may say so, Matt Taylor, aka me. So, check out Lamplight using the link in the description box. It's an incredible read, and a very, very good listen too. Greetings to those who watch below. You may remember a while back, the video I did on historical vampire cases. Well, today I'm back with the flip side of that coin, historical werewolf cases. Some of these cases are about humans who supposedly became werewolves and killed, while others are of spectral lycanthropes. Either way, I hope you enjoy. But before we start, I'd like to say thank you to those who dwell below, an exclusive channel membership that gets you shoutouts at the start of every video. So thank you to Steffi Ray, Lefty Kim, M.A. Way, Julie B, Chris, BLK Chris, Tegan S, Tasos Karamaris, LT Punisher 666, Wicked Witch, Lisa Watts, and Christina Groves. Also, to keep you updated, Lamplight should be ready to release on Audible within the next couple of days. So please, if you're on there, keep an eye out for it. I promise you, it's a fantastic book, and I can't wait to get started on the next part later this year. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy. The Polygny Werewolves In December 1521, two men were charged with witchcraft and cannibalism, and brought before the Inquisitor General for the Diocese of Besancon, France. The accused were Pierre Burgot, called Peter the Great because of his size, and Michael Verdun. Partway into the trial, Burgot made a full confession. He said that 19 years earlier in Polygny, a terrible storm scattered his flock of sheep. He enlisted the help of others and went out in search of his lost flock. 
three black horsemen rode up to him and inquired about his troubles. One of the men promised three things. Burgot would find his lost sheep, he would be protected and would never have any more trouble, and he would be given money. He would have all of these things if he would pledge to serve only the man's master. Burgot agreed to meet the man again in four or five days. Burgot did find all of his sheep, and he went to the meeting. He learned that the mysterious man was a servant of the devil. He swore allegiance to the devil and renounced Christianity. He kissed the man's left hand, which he described as black and ice cold as that of a corpse. He later learned the man's name was Moiset. Burgot served the devil for two years. His flock was protected, but Burgot soon tired of this life and resumed attending church. He was approached by Michael Verdun and was persuaded to renew his compact with the devil on the promise of getting money. Verdun took him into the woods, where a ceremony was performed for transforming into werewolves. Burgot described it thusly, In a wood near Chastel Charnon, we met with many others whom I did not recognise. We danced, and each had in his or her hand a green taper with a blue flame. Still under the delusion that I should obtain money, Michael persuaded me to move with the greatest celerity, and in order to do this, after I'd stripped myself, he smeared me with a salve, and I believed myself then to be transformed into a wolf. I was at first somewhat horrified at my four wolf's feet, and the fur with which I was covered all at once, but I found that I could now travel with the speed of the wind. This could not have taken place without the help of our powerful master, who was present during our excursion, though I did not perceive him till I had recovered my human form. Michael did the same as myself. When we had been one or two hours in this condition of metamorphosis, Michael smeared us again, and, quick as that, we resumed our human forms. The salve was given us by our masters. To me it was given by Moiset, to Michael by his own master, Gilliman. Burgot insisted that, unlike the accounts given by other accused witches and werewolves, he felt no exhaustion after his shape-shifting adventures. He said that he and Verdun went out many times as wolves. On one occasion, Burgot said he seized a boy of about six or seven years old, intending to tear him to pieces and eat him. The boy screamed so loudly that Burgot was forced to retreat to his clothes and smear himself with ointment in order to resume his human shape so that he could escape detection. On another occasion, he and Verdun attacked and tore to pieces a woman who was gathering peas. They killed a man who attempted to rescue her. They attacked, killed, and ate a girl of four years old, leaving only one arm left. Verdun thought the flesh to be especially delicious. They strangled another girl and drank her blood. In his human form, Burgot attacked a girl of nine who was weeding her garden. She begged for her life, but he snapped her neck, killing her. He attacked a goat and bit it in the throat, and then killed it with his knife. Burgot told the Inquisitor that he had to be naked in order to make the transformation into a wolf, 
but Verdun could do it with his clothes on. Burgot could not explain what happened to his wolf hair when he shapeshifted back into human form. It just seemed to vanish. Michael Verdun corroborated all of Burgot's statements. The Merionthshire Werewolf This is a 19th century werewolf case from Wales, recorded by Montague Summers in his book The Werewolf. According to Summers, the case is probably the same as one described by J. Wentworth Day in the magazine The Passing Show in July 1932. Summers' description is florid, the characteristics of the case and the manner in which the werewolf is experienced bear a similarity to the Crogling Grange Vampire, an English case recorded in 1871. The werewolf incident reportedly occurred in the 1880s on the shores of a remote lake in the hills of Merionthshire, Wales. An unnamed Oxford professor and his wife took a cottage on the lakeshore for a summer so that the professor could pursue his passion of fishing. They entertained a guest while staying there. One day, while rowing out onto the lake, the professor discovered near the shoreline a skull that appeared to be of a very large dog. He took it back to the cottage and left it on a kitchen shelf. That evening, his wife was alone in the cottage. She heard a snuffling and scratching at the kitchen door that sounded like that of a dog. As she moved, something drew her attention to the window, and there, she saw glaring at her through the diamond panes the head of a huge creature, half animal, half human. The cruel panting jaws were gaping wide and showed keen white teeth. The great furry paws clasped the windowsill-like hands. The red eyes gleamed hideously. It was the gaze of a man, horribly intensive, horribly intelligent. Half fainting with fear, she ran through to the front door and shot the bolt. A moment after, she heard heavy breathing outside and the latch rattled menacingly. The minutes that followed were full of acutest suspense, and now and again a low snarl would be heard at the door or window, and a sound as though the creature was endeavouring to force its entrance. At last, the voices of her husband and his friend, who had come back from their ramble, sounded in the little garden and as they knocked, finding the door shut, she was but able to open it before she fell in a swoon at their feet. Evidently, the men had neither seen nor heard anything unusual. After the wife relayed what had happened, the men sat up all night, armed with sticks and a gun. The hours passed slowly, until when all was darkest and most lonely, the soft thud of cushioned paws was heard on the gravel outside and nails scratched at the kitchen window. To their horror, in the stale, phosphorescent light, they saw the hideous mask of a wolf with the eyes of a man glaring through the glass, eyes that were red with hellish rage. Snatching the gun, they rushed to the door, but it had seen their movement and was away in a moment. As they issued from the house, a shadowy, unidentified shape slipped through the open gate, and in the stars, they could just see a huge animal making towards the lake into which it disappeared silently, nor did a ruffle cross the surface of the water. The next morning, the professor rode out onto the lake 
and threw the skull as far as possible into the water. The werewolf was not seen again. This case is similar to a haunting and ghost law that exists around the world, that the dead do not like having their burial grounds and remains disturbed. Was the werewolf an angry ghost that wanted to repossess his own skull? Summers offers no opinion. However, in Welsh folklore, many of the lakes, especially in hilly and remote areas, are haunted, usually by fairies. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Jean Grenier Jean Grenier was the 13-year-old werewolf of lands in southern France. The case of Jean Grenier became one of the most famous and most discussed episodes of lycanthropy in Europe. It began one spring afternoon with two girl shepherds. They came upon an odd-looking boy who was sitting on a log. His long red hair was thick and matted, and he had an olive complexion. He was emaciated, but his eyes were bright and fierce, and he had prominent canine teeth that protruded over his lower lip when his mouth was closed. His hands were excessively large and powerful looking. His fingernails were black and pointed like the talons of a bird. His clothing was in tatters. He was given to bursts of maniacal laughter. He introduced himself as Jean Grenier, the son of a priest, and he demanded to know which of the girls was prettier, for he would marry that one. He said he looked the way he did because sometimes he wore a wolf skin. The wolfskin had been given to him by a man named Pierre Laberon, who wore an iron chain about his neck, which he gnawed, and who lived in a hellish place of gloom and fire. Grenier said that Laberon wrapped the wolfskin cape around him every Monday, Friday and Sunday, and for about an hour at dusk every other day, this transformed Grenier into a wolf. He told the girls, I've killed dogs and drunk their blood, but little girls taste better. Their flesh is tender and sweet, their blood rich and warm. I have eaten many a maiden, as I have been on my raids together with my nine companions. I am a werewolf. (laughs) If the sun were to set, I would soon fall on one of you and make a meal of you. The girls fled. Meanwhile, a 13-year-old girl, Marguerite Poirier, who lived in the village of Saint-Antoine-de-Pizan, was well acquainted with Grenier, for she tended sheep with him. He often frightened her 
with his wild and gruesome stories of being a werewolf and killing and eating dogs and girls. He claimed to have eaten many girls, whose flesh he preferred to dogs, and he described two incidents to Poirier. One girl he nearly devoured and threw the remainder of her corpse to a wolf that arrived. The second girl he bit to death, lapped up her blood, and ate every bit of her except for her arms and shoulders. One day, Poirier had an experience that terrified her so much that she abandoned her flock and ran home. She was tending the sheep alone when she was suddenly attacked by a wild beast that tore her clothing with its fangs. She beat it off with her staff. It sat up on its hind legs like a begging dog and gave her a look of utter rage. It resembled a wolf, but was not a wolf. It was shorter and stouter, with a stumpy tail, small head, and red hair. The villagers were alarmed at this report, for several little girls had gone missing. Poirier's account and her descriptions of Grenier and his stories caused an investigation to be mounted. Grenier was arrested. It was revealed that he was not the son of a priest, but was the son of a poor labourer in the same village as Poirier. Three months prior, he had left home and did odd work and begged. He had taken several jobs tending sheep, but had been dismissed for neglecting his work. Grenier willingly told the court about his werewolf escapades. He said that when he had been 11 years old, a neighbour had taken him deep into the woods and introduced him to Monsieur de la Forest, a black man who signed him with his nail and gave Grenier and his neighbour an ointment and a wolfskin. From then on, Grenier had run about as a werewolf. He admitted to attacking Poirier, intending to kill her, but she fended him off. He said he had only killed one dog, a white one, and had drunk its blood. He had wounded another dog, but was chased off by its owner. He also described killing several small children. Grenier said that he went out hunting for children when commanded to do so by the Lord of the Forest, who was his master. When so ordered, he rubbed ointment into his body and left his clothes in a thicket. He preferred to go out in the daytime when the moon was waning, but sometimes went out as a wolf at night. The Lord of the Forest had forbidden him to bite the thumbnail of his left hand, and to always keep it in sight when he was in wolf form. This nail was longer and thicker than his other nails. According to Grenier, his own father also had a wolf skin and ran with him on one occasion when he killed and ate a girl who was tending geese in the village of Griand. His stepmother left because she had once seen him vomit the paws of a dog and fingers of a child. Many of the details given by Grenier in his testimony match details of known attacks and wounds. However, the only witness who corroborated his assertion that he turned into a wolf was Poirier. When confronted with his father, Grenier wavered, but then stuck to his story. There was no other evidence against the father, who was dismissed by the court. It was in the president of the court's opinion that Grenier was merely feeble-brained and was susceptible to hallucinations, and that he was not under any influence of the devil. The court sentenced Grenier to life imprisonment at a monastery at Bordeaux, where he was to receive religious instruction. 
at the monastery, Grenier ran about on all fours and ate bloody and raw offal. Seven years into his confinement, he was visited by the noted demonologist Pierre Delancre. By then, both his appearance and his mind had greatly deteriorated. He told his complete story to Delancre and insisted that the Lord of the Forest had visited him twice at the monastery, but he had driven him off with a cross. Soon after Delancre's visit, Grenier died at the age of 20. The Hexham Heads The Hexham Heads is a case of a demonic phantom werewolf that appeared in conjunction with the discovery of some strange stone skulls in England. The Hexham Heads case occurred in 1972 in Hexham, Northumberland. In February of 1972, 11-year-old Colin Robson was weeding his family's garden when he dug up a carved stone head. He and his brother dug more and found a second stone head. Both were slightly smaller than tennis balls and were very heavy. One appeared to be that of a man, and the other seemed like one of a female witch. The boys took the stone skulls into the house. Strange poltergeist-like things began to happen, both in the Robson household and the Dodd household next door. The heads would be found turned around, seemingly of their own accord. Objects would be found broken. The bed of one of the Robson girls was found covered with shards of glass. In the Dodd household, a werewolf was seen in the middle of the night in the bedroom of the husband and wife. The half-man, half-beast ran down the stairs on its hind legs and went out the front door. The heads were acquired by an expert on Celtic culture, Dr. Anne Ross, who lived in Southampton, and who knew nothing about the apparition or disturbances. Ross thought the heads were common religious objects, about 1,800 years old. She already had several similar ones in her collection, but the new ones proved to be problematic. One night, Ross suffered troubled sleep and awoke feeling very cold and frightened. She looked toward her door and saw a black figure, half man and half beast, about six feet tall. Its upper part was wolf and the lower part human. The whole body was covered in black, thick fur. Upon being seen, the figure disappeared, and Ross heard it running on padded feet down the stairs. She felt compelled to pursue it and saw it disappear toward the back of her house. This figure was also seen one afternoon by her teenage daughter. Arriving home from school to an empty house, the girl opened the front door and saw the werewolf on the stairs. It vaulted over the banister, landed in the hall and took off for the back of the house. Like her mother, the girl felt oddly compelled to pursue it, despite her terror, and saw it disappear in the doorway of the music room where the hall ended. The Ross family encountered the werewolf several more times. It was usually seen on the stairs, and it would always jump over the banister and run down the hall, disappearing. Sometimes the sounds of its padded steps could be heard, though nothing was seen. Ross felt the house became permeated with a definite presence of evil, and visitors remarked on this as well. The most unusual turn in the case occurred when a man stepped forward and claimed to be the maker of the heads. Desmond Craigie 
had lived in the house occupied by the Robsons. He said he had made the heads as toys for his two daughters in 1956, and that they had been lost in the garden of the property. No explanation has ever been found for the strange werewolf manifestations. The Werewolf of Bedborg Murderer, Cannibal and Werewolf These were all accusations that were thrown against Peter Stumpf. While records of his life before the crimes were sparse, his killing and gruesome execution are well documented in the history books. While the exact date of Peter Stump's birth is unknown, historians have determined that it was around 1545 to 1550, in Bedborg, a rural community in Germany. Peter was a successful farmer who had an above average wealth. He married and had two children, but lost his wife sometime in the 1580s. Multiple sources for his story presented various spellings for Peter's last name, including Stub, Stub, Stumpf, and Stump, but all referred to his left hand as being missing, leaving only a stump. There were a series of eerie killings that occurred in Bedburg from 1564 to 1589. Nobody suspected Peter of anything, though by the late 1580s, rumours of a murderous werewolf had began floating around. According to sources, a girl was attacked by a wolf-like creature until God intervened with a herd of cattle that caught the creature in a stampede. When this was reported, men from the village searched for the creature and in one encounter cut off its left paw. In a later search, the hunters supposedly cornered the werewolf when it suddenly transformed back into Peter. Their smoking gun, Peter's left hand, was also missing. Authorities brought Peter into questioning, which, in the 16th century, meant torture. They tied him to the rack, meaning to stretch him out until he had confessed to his crimes. However, before the torture even begun, Peter confessed to everything. According to the records, Peter supposedly said that he had practiced black magic ever since he was 12. He stated that later in his life, he had met a devil that gave him a magical belt, which in his own words allowed his transformation into the likeness of a greedy devouring wolf, strong and mighty, with eyes great and large, which in the night sparkled like a fire, a mouth great and wide, with most sharp and cruel teeth, a huge body and mighty paws. If Peter removed the belt, he would transform back into a human, the belt was never found after his arrest. Peter further said that he ate livestock, women and children for 25 years as a werewolf. In total, he consumed 14 minors and two pregnant women, including their unborn children. Concerning the unborn, Peter said, I ate their hearts panting hot and raw, and he described them as dainty morsels. One of Peter's victims was supposedly his own son. For all of this, Peter was sentenced to death. His mistress and daughter were condemned to join him for harbouring his existence. Peter's execution on October 31st, 1589 
is one of the most morbid recorded in history. His executioners broke him on the wheel, which meant he was strapped to a large cartwheel, and with a pinching iron claw, his killers slowly tore off pieces of his flesh. After the torture, an axeman beat his limbs until they were broken with the blunt side of his axe. This was to ensure that the werewolf could no longer hunt if he rose from the dead. While this was being done, his mistress and daughter were already being burned in a pyre. Peter soon joined his family when at last a swordsman beheaded him. The torture wheel and his head were placed on display, along with the figure of a wolf, to warn others like him. Although there probably is a perfectly rational explanation for the events, like psychosis and hysteria in witch trials, it's interesting to see how early societies dealt with the unknown. Maybe Peter was an innocent man who was caught up in a weird coincidence of wolf attacks, or maybe he was just a crazed serial killer. Or who knows, maybe he was a werewolf that ate children in the night. Hi guys, thank you so much for listening to today's video. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you did, make sure to leave a like and also subscribe to the channel. My next video, I'm looking at some more mysterious cases from history. Next time, it will be unnamed and unknown serial killers. So, until next time, sleep tight. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big